and welcome to the Compassionate Achiever podcast. I'm Tracy Day. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Chris Cook. Hello. Hey, Tracy. How's it going? I am so great. Here we are for our first live podcast. So we're going to have to kind of not even look at the audience. What audience? Because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Because we're going to just pretend like we're in the studio, like we always are. But we just happen to have a few extras here. Thank you so much for coming, everybody. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Really thanks. appreciate it. I know. And our so. guests, yeah. <laughs> Um, so here we've taken a little hiatus for we a did. while, which was kind of nice, although not that I missed I miss you. seeing you. I, I did you know, miss you. I don't, I don't I know, know if your husband Scott's going to take this the wrong <laughs> way, but I miss seeing you. Right? I missed but. you too. But you know what? We had a lot going on. You've got a lot to go on that you've been doing. I want to talk about that. I've had a wedding, all kinds of... And no well, one got arrested. No one got arrested in your no wedding. No one got arrested. See, I'm disappointed in Scott. I, I have to talk about I him. Know. We, I, got, we got to yeah, talk about yeah, that. Yeah, it not good. clearly is yeah. not the right kind of party if nobody <laughs> no. goes home in handcuffs, right? <laughs> but um, no, my daughter got married. It was amazing. And, um, you know, everybody does things a little differently now. Yes. So our whole family, all... like six kids and their significant others and Scott and I all went away on their honeymoon. It was amazing. Wait a minute. Say we that did, again? Yeah, I know. I know. Wait, Sounds you, a little weird, but No, you all went on the <laughs> We all did. Yes. Um so there was 12 of us. Whoa. Which was really fun and uh, we did give them their own <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that weird, but um, so, but we had a great time, and uh, all those things leading up to weddings and everything else has been amazing. And it's but it's been several weeks. What have you been up to? Well, I, I just want to stay with the wedding for a sec because there's been some really cool studies done about what happens at weddings, and it's not about handcuffs, right? It's about what okay. happens inside of all of us. And you know, as we know, we talked about before on the podcast, the role of oxytocin, not oxycotton, right? <laughs> oxytocin, right? Well, they what kind of do the same thing, don't <laughs> no, they, a little well, bit? Like, no, it's, one, one's not so addictive, right? right? Okay, not, one okay. doesn't throw you into you know Breaking Bad episodes, right? Yeah. The, other, the other one kind of just, oxytocin, you know, makes you actually have more trust for others, right? And what they've, one of the places they actually found this, the trust building is actually in weddings. When families are coming really? together, yes, and ground zero for the highest amount of oxytocin is mother of the bride. Really? Yes, and so everyone else around the mother of the bride, you know, the closer you are to the mother of the bride, so like Scott, right, he's getting a lot of oxytocin. He's feeling good, not just because of what you guys maybe were drinking or <laughs> but because he was around you right it and was so awesome it's, we that's a, really we, cool that you know i did not and know that yes a guy named paul zach actually did that in a book called the moral molecule right he actually showed how trust grows when someone is celebrating something that's so important that brings family together if you're surrounded by that you actually increase your oxytocin as well oh that's so, so good yeah, that's and cool. i believe that because i i kind of saw it in action scott made this amazing toast and everybody was just there wasn't a dry eye and it was it was really awesome it was very moving and cool so, yeah we've got happy things going on now other than you i, I came in gave you a big hug and you're like don't easy, easy. yeah i got a few staples Little, in my back yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so it's, i heard yesterday when you uh came in from the end of that surgery, you were feeling no pain, and that was the oxycotton, or no, <laughs> no, the, no like, oxycotton. No. It was, but yeah, I was feeling a little, little fresh. Mm, yes, there you and go. It, but we had honors council meeting. I had to get that, get that through. And of course, it's through. So, 
yeah, let's let's move on from that discussion. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we won't throw you on, under the bus so early in the podcast. No, not, not so not, much. Not, not this time. But yeah, it's been a. When you were going through the wedding ceremony, I actually ran my first marathon uh, awesome. ever. So that was awesome. great in Hartford. Congrats! So that was very cool, and yeah. hit that wall at mile 23 or 24, and just wanted to finish. So that's cool. <laughs> and then the other big thing that that really popped was the Wall Street Journal picking up the Compassionate Achiever this month is one of the 10 must-read books for Yay! the month of October that's for Wall so Street Journal. Awesome. I'm so, so excited. It's getting you. it's getting noticed. Our podcast is growing. Uh, I'm I'm really excited where everything's going here, and you know we have a bunch of students students in the audience, and they make everything go better, right? The questions they ask, and we're going to hear some of those questions. Not like I'm putting pressure on them today, right? But we're going to oh, hear no, no. Right? <laughs> hear some of those questions and, and how they see the world, and they make us see the world, I think, in better ways, in more constructive ways. It, yeah, it can be critical at times, but that criticism is actually. When you look behind the criti- criticism, it's actually generated by trying to improve the world that they're in right now. And I'm excited to have our guest tonight, right? We're oh in the Kathwari Honors House, right? And Mr. Kathwari is, is the one that made, in my, my opinion, he'll, he'll deny this because he's very <laughs> humble, but he gave us not only the engine to have this honors program take off, um, but the wings, the body of the plane. Yeah, he stepped up and it, are helping kids and students he doesn't even know, and he gets to meet them at graduations. He was even a little bit in trouble because the last graduation um, that we had for our honors program, he purposely went late to his own grandson's birthday party so he could spend time with the parents and the students of the Katwari Honors Program and get to know them. That's just the type of person he is. And so when we have a podcast called The Compassion Achiever and we're going live for the first time in the Katwari Honors House, this is very special. It is, Tracy, yes. to have Farouk yeah. Kathwari here, you know, uh, and to have a, just a, an easy conversation about compassion, success, and he's a living embodiment I was going to say, he is pretty much the epitome and the poster child for the compassionate achiever, so. Yeah, and, and over the long haul, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, there's some people who do it in a short term for a little short term hit. He doesn't, right? And it's proof positive. And we're going to talk about this, but he donated one million dollars to this program to get this off and then he donated the furniture we're sitting on which i'm sure we're going to talk <laughs> about that say, right yeah. so everything literally from our behinds to the our brains right he's behind it all and and to have him here and then have the students interact with him with us that that that's that's the way it should be absolutely right? well i think that is a perfect segue to bring our new guest, our, I, I'm just so excited. We're kicking off so far. We have 14 podcasts in the can. As they First say. season done. First season done. And we're going to kick it off with a bang. Uh, our second season with Dr. Farouk Kathwari. We're going to talk about that. He is the chairman, president, and CEO of Ethan Allen Interiors. Since 1988, and they just celebrated 85 years of the company, which is incredible. And we're gonna talk about what he does with Ethan Allen, and more importantly, what he does with everything else that with his time. So I'd like to introduce Farouk Kuthwari. Well, thank you, Farouk, for coming. Well, first of all, I should ask you if it's okay if we go by first names here, because um, we've got Dr. 
Dr. Chris Cook. We've got Dr. 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 Farooq Kathwari. You have three um, honorary doctor degrees. Is that correct? Well, first of all, I'm very, very happy to be here. And the first name is fine. I appreciate it. Uh, there's that. a difference in the doctors because he really studied. <laughs> there you go. Well, and I, I would go by... We'd have to go doctor, 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 and I'd be like non-doc day. So yeah, we're, we're going to skip that and go right for, make it easy, go right for the first names. But I do want to thank you for being here. And you were just telling us the story of what you passed up to be on our podcast, which, oh yeah, I mean, it, it's big enough that you're here, but then when I hear that of what you passed up, um, so tell us where you really should have been. But <laughs> no, I should have really been here. Well, I appreciate it. But I was supposed to be in Shanghai, China. Mm-hmm. So, but then I decided that for a number of reasons, this was also one of them, that it would be more important to be here. Well, I thank you. Um, and we're going to talk about, you know, normally I don't like to read things, but there's no way that I could remember this. And Come on, Chasey. I'm, 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 I just cannot do it. And I'm sure I'm going to miss several of them if I, if I, you know, screw them up or whatever, you stop me. But I think it's important for our listeners and our audience to know really who you are. I mean, obviously, people know that you're the CEO of an amazing corporation, Ethan Allen, and what you've done with that company. But I think behind the scenes is the more important part. And um, you serve on so many nonprofit organizations. So I'm going to have to read this. I'll do it quickly. Farouk is a member of several boards, including overseers of the International Rescue Committee, the Council on Foreign Relations, the International Advisory Council of the US Institute of Peace, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Chairman Emeritus of Refugees International, the New York Stock Exchange, a director of the Institute of the Study of Diplomacy at Georgetown University. He's also on the Western Connecticut State University Foundation Board, love that. And he's the co-chairman of the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council. He also serves as a member of the presidency, the President's Advisory Commission on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders from 2010 to 2014. And you are the founder of the Kashmir Study Group. So thank you. I mean, really. And that's all we have for tonight. And (laughs) that pretty much says it all. So first of all, let's kick off. Um, Tell us about the Kashmir Study Group. Why did you start that and, and what is it? Well, I, you know, I was born in Kashmir. It's a region of conflict. And our families were deeply impacted, separated, and as many, many other families were. So in fact, I came here at the age of 20 from these beautiful mountains of Kashmir to beautiful Brooklyn and went to NYU at night and had to work during the days. So I lived through conflict, I lived through, uh, see the impact, and then later on when I got an opportunity uh, in the, actually about almost 25 years back, uh, that I, while I was involved in trying to see if I could help, but about 25 years back I was invited by many, many of the of the, of, the, of the people who were infected by the conflict, and in fact the governments of India, Pakistan, and some leaders, 
to come and take a look at and to see if there are some ways to help. And I realized that to help, one has to help change the paradigms of the past because everybody had their perspectives and unfortunately most of them were not feasible. So realize that to make any headway, you have to have a, an organization that will help, not, in, not just an individual. So I was very fortunate that we're able to create the study group with 24 leading members, former US ambassadors, even some members of Congress, think tank presidents from all over the country. And then we started the process. Now, the process is something similar. You know, I run an enterprise where marketing is important. To get anything known, you've got to have the brand that has got to be known and desired. So the Kashmir study group had to become known and desired. So these members that we had, they decided to travel to the region and to come with, a, initially, a status of, this, of what the situation was. And that goes back to 19... 97 came with a report and a year later we were invited and I was invited to spend more time with the parties and to do that we again uh, realized that in many of these conflicts the people and I'm talking of people who are in power really do not fully comprehend and understand the issues they don't even comprehend how these places were created you can now talk about the current conflicts, whether it's Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan, and you'll be surprised how many of the leaders who are making decisions do not fully comprehend the origins of the problems. The same thing in Kashmir, that was the case. And uh, I had actually one professor from the University of Minnesota who was one of the greatest experts in demography and geography in Kashmir, of the Kashmir region, actually of the whole of South Asia come with a report, and I told him, his name is Dr. Joseph Schwartzberg, that let's do a, a, a report through maps and uh, papers and, and written, but only 12 pages, because nobody's going to read more than that. At first he said, you know, he needs 400 pages. <laughs> but he did, and that really helped create, at least make, to understand, and we then ended up spending the next 10 years back and forth in discussing what we always focused on was there should be a peaceful, honorable, and a feasible resolution. And that's not only for Kashmir, that's for other reasons as well. So made a lot of progress, some progress has been made, but still a lot of work still needs to be done. Mm, so much work. But I, first of all, I want to thank you again for, for taking the time to actually put your time into things like that. Because as we see all the time in governments, it just, you know, so somebody who can step back and look at it from a different perspective is so encouraging. Well, and, and Farouk, on that, you've also been a part of the Middle East um, peace, search for a Middle East peace. Could you say some something about that? Because I think some of our listeners don't know you know, that you're not just a successful businessman. This is what Tracy was getting at, too, right? Just by asking about the Kashmir group. But you've been involved in other uh, avenues of building cooperation, of building collaboration, not just between businesses. And you've done that recently with Disney, right, with Ethan Allen. 
but you've been trying to help governments. Could you speak to something? Well, you know, one of the areas that I did spend some time, is, which is indirectly related to the Kashmir issues of Afghanistan. And uh, I was recently, actually two days back in Washington, with a group discussing Afghanistan. And I was listening, and then I referred to a, uh, a plaque that I have in my office, which you might have seen. It is this very famous saying of Einstein, which says, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So I mentioned that, and I said, discussing Afghanistan, we got to keep that in perspective in mind because it's, we may n not make a difference because insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. So made some progress. I've traveled to that region many times. And, you know, we can help a little bit help shape the debate. <laughs> That's all one can do. So I read a quote, Farouk, um, that said, that supposedly was quoted, that you said, uh, to a great degree, politicians and the diplomats have failed in regions of conflict and war. The reason CEOs can contribute is that they have a different mindset. What is that difference in mindset? Well, I said that because once we, I had helped establish the Kashmir Study Group, which consisted of some very, very well-respected, knowledgeable diplomats, politicians, academics. And in fact, when I got in the room, I was myself wondering, you know, these folks know so much, they have so much of knowledge, how would I be able to help? Then it didn't take me long to understand that their perspective to a great degree was to discuss the problem, but not necessarily come with solutions. Mm -hmm. So my whole upbringing is that we don't have a meeting at Ethan Allen most of the time unless we come with a solution. We just don't sit and talk. So that was a different mindset. Then I realized that my objective would be to help them listen and help them guide them so that we'll end up with coming with solutions. I also realized if I had given those ideas of solutions up front, they may not have joined. Mm. But later on, they were very happy that their ideas were taken in such a manner that we came with, uh, with practical, feasible solutions. Mm -hmm. And they all endorsed it. And you had to build that trust initially to then go in and listen to their stories, right? And, and listen to where they were coming from. We talk about that a lot. Chris, um, and you certainly do in the book about collaboration right. and how to, how to make that work. Um, and I think Farouk, right, Farouk used listen, I think, three or four times just in that one answer to you, right? And this is where I think he is a model compassion achiever because the first step in compassion, right, and compassion is uh, having this holistic understanding of a problem and then a commitment to act to solve it. And his mindset, right, for him, he went in thinking, all right, all these great people who know the field really well, know their areas really well, but no one's listening to everyone, right? And he's like, I can do this because this is what we do in the business field to make a success. But even some CEOs don't listen, right? And so when, he's, when he kept talking about listening, I was like, that's the first step in compassion, right, to overcoming any problem. But this is, I wanted to tell you, Tracy, and I'm going to embarrass him a little bit right now, because when I went to visit with Farouk, um, we were talking about a whole bunch of things, and I hadn't seen the whole 
the whole floor yet. And he's like, come on, let's, let's go around. I am not kidding. He knew everybody's name in every department. He even knew the wife, the husband, and then that they had kids. And in some, you knew they had pets. And all I could think of is, I don't know many CEOs of very large corporations like Ethan Allen that where the CEO walks around and can tell everybody by their first name. Well, one of the reasons is that I've been there very long. <laughs> well, there have been CEOs that have been around yeah, long. I've been, I've been, you know, they tell me that I'm one of the longest serving CEOs of a public company. Well, but, but there are CEOs who don't go and drill all the way down. And I wanted to ask you, and it was one of the things that, you know, I didn't get to ask you, but why do you do that? And I think in some business schools, they're taught to be ruthless. And when I see you, I don't, that word doesn't come to mind at all. But yet, you have one of the most successful companies in the world, not just in the United States. And I think it's one of those things that you do, is you take the time. Why do you do that? Well, <clears throat> when I became president, and even before that, but when I became president, I also, now that goes back to... Uh, 1985. It's a long time. In fact, that's uh, when I became, a, I got on the board of this uh, university. So I've been one of the longest serving board members here too. Thank God. <laughs> so um, at that time, I realized as that every institution, every person must operate under certain principles. So I thought about it, common sense principles, took it from the, his, the historic perspective, the religious perspectives, and I narrowed it down to 10 leadership principles. And one of the first one is that, that you know, leaders must work hard. Another principle is that uh, speed, if something is important, you better do it fast. Another one is the relative importance of priorities. It's the leadership's responsibility to determine what is important because we are confronted with all kinds of issues. It's, a, it's, a, it's not for leaders, it's for every human being. You've got to look at your, your issues and to say, okay, what is important? And then one of the, the last ones, which is the most important, is justice. I mean, this is on our website, which is you must make decisions fairly. Now, fairly doesn't mean that you are soft that you give things away. Fairly means that you are going to stick for your principles and you'll be willing to lose. Now, if you're not willing to lose, you can't always win. So for principles, you've got to be willing to lose. Now, in business world, most business leaders believe that losing is bad. We have been very successful because most of the time when I say no, they know I mean no. <laughs> and that sort of creates and overall understanding of how we will operate. So we have very motivated people. We have people at Ethan Allen for 20, 30, 40 years or more who have been working. We have also, um, I mean, I would say that most of our management and leadership has come through the ranks. 70% of our leaders are women because we are an interior design company. So when we were going into retail, I said, who is the best person to run? I always believe the best person to run anything is somebody who's got a lot of passion for it. You can teach them principles, but you can't teach them passion. You can, if somebody wants to be 
an artist, you better have a great sense of art. Then you can, you know, help them. So we decided that we will teach interior designers to become managers. I was told it's not possible, their mindset is different. I disagreed because you know, there are many interior designers that have what you might call the right brain and the left brain. And we did. So about, we have over 200 management associates at Ethan Allen and about 70% have come through the interior design ranks and they've done, they're doing an amazing job. But they also understand that they've got to treat their people fairly. We have manufacturing. In the 75% of our products are made in our own workshops. So we are one of the very unique organizations left in the world, which is what you might say vertically integrated from the concept of an idea to design, to engineering, to uh, making the product, to marketing it, to retailing it, I mean, to marketing it, and then even delivering it. A lot of companies over the, the time world have said, you know, let somebody else do all those things. Now, it has positives, it also has a certain cost. The cost is that we have refrained from buying other companies and growing by buying others, which as you know, if you're a public company, there's a big temptation and even a pressure for you to do that because, you know, the Wall Street wants you to grow at any cost. So it takes a tremendous amount of, I would say, discipline and even courage to say no, because we only run one enterprise, and that gives us an opportunity to work on our principles, and principles of, uh, you know, for instance, uh, we have one of the, I would say, one of the strongest environmental and social responsibility at Ethan Allen. We manufacture, and we have major plants in Vermont, in North Carolina, even in New Jersey. And we even, in last 10 years back, opened one major plant in central Mexico and one in Honduras. And we went to Mexico. Uh, we said, we are going to follow similar environmental and social responsibility as we do in the United States. They said, it's not needed. I said, I don't care. That's what you're going to do. Today, we started with 70 people there. Now we have 700 people working. They're tremendously proud. And in fact, at our convention last week, every year, the management over there presents me a book, a beautiful book about Mexico, its culture, different elements, signed by all the, no, 800 people, signed by 800 people. Now you've got to do that to make sure you take care of people, but then you expect them to work hard. It's a two-way street. So I saw um, your interview, Farouk, um, on CNBC, which I thought was very interesting. And you mentioned that you, in order to stay ahead of the curve, you have to stay relevant. How does, how does a company stay relevant, or is it what you've just referred to by doing those kinds of things? Um, you know, the question of being relevant is very critical for everybody, especially with the amount of disruptions taking place. In fact, we had our earnings released last evening, and I had a earnings call. It's a, you know, it's on. Yeah, one can look at it as a public, uh, is available publicly. And uh, so I was now talking to all the investors and talking to them about our plans. And I referred. I said, okay, I'll talk to them, but I'm going to really be talking to our, all the people who participated in our convention. 
So I said, let me tell you about what we did at the convention. And through, the, through what we did at the convention about discussing, the first thing that we talked at our convention was talent. Now, we're talking of relevance. If you don't have good talent, you're not going to make a difference. The second thing we talked about was being relevant in offerings, whatever your product line is. You've got to make sure that your products are relevant to the times. Then we said, is our marketing relevant today? You know, you folks are in marketing, you know how much of change that has taken place. Uh, we talked about the fact that um, uh, to be relevant uh, last year, we decided that, you know, either you, go, you better be a disruptor or you're going to be disrupted. So I said, who's the biggest disruptor around these days? It was Amazon. So I called up the CEO and I said, we haven't in, at that time in 84 years or 83 years collaborated with anybody. But let's see if we can do that. And a year before that, we did the same thing with Disney. But on our terms. So we have, if you go to Amazon.com, you'll see an Ethan Allen design studio, very different from anybody else. Now, now you have to stay relevant. We have to today make sure that most people today come into our stores. We have 300 of them, 200 in North America. 70% of them come because they, they first go to our digital mediums, mobile, website. So if you don't get people over there, they're not going to come to your retail design centers or stores. So today we have to bring people to our website. That's why I said, where are most people going? Amazon, 50, 60, 70 million people. So I said, there's a price, but let them go there. And they go, and then they're coming and in fact meeting our designers. The second thing is, in the last one year, we are having our designers now 550 of them have been trained to chat online. Three, four years back, we couldn't have, we, we didn't even think of it. They're not chatting online with customers. And then they see them or they sell the product because that's a new world. And staying relevant also means that you have to have, invest in technology at every level. In manufacturing, we cannot stay uh, maintain manufacturing in North America and compete with the rest of the world if we don't have the best technology. So relevance means technology at all levels. And then finally, when you do all of those things, you better also do it in a manner that will retain confidence, retain momentum, motivation. So that's where our principles come in. Mm -hmm. So I have another quick question. Then I want to take some questions from the audience. I want to welcome you to come up um, and feel free to chime in. Um, so you were awarded the um, from Worth Magazine, one of the top 50 best CEOs in the United States. Why do you think they gave that to you? Well, maybe a mistake, but... Uh... <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. What do you think your your top qualifications are? I mean, what, what, we always like to give our listeners tools to become compassionate achievers. What do you think that takes to be a compassionate achiever? Because Farouk Worth Magazine saw that you, you have tools that maybe are innate, so you're not thinking about it, right? But what we, as Tracy said, we want to help people to understand that we all can, you know, you have lessons for us to learn. And so we want to bring them out for, for everyone. And, and I saw just some of it when I was walking the floor with you. 
And but this question is so near and dear to me, and I'm so glad Tracy um, brought this up because I think there are going to be a lot of people that are going to get something from this answer, and I think more more so than you think uh, of that. Well, I think uh, you asked the earlier question about relevancy. I think you have to remain relevant. You have to relevance means that you have to constantly change, but change in a positive way. I, I believe that um, operating a very vertically integrated company and also having a successful business. For 85 years, we've always made a profit. Not, easy to, not easy to say. Mm-hmm. We have been in business for 85 years. To stay relevant for 85 years is not easy. Now, the people um, who were before me, who founded the company, were also great entrepreneurs. Nat and Sal, our former, uh, f- the founder chairman, of course, and Sal School of Business at Westcon here is named after him. They also set the right precedent. Uh, you have to be able to, uh, to, relevancy means that you are producing results over a longer period of time. I had the opportunity that Ethan Allen was a public company, then it was taken over by another company, and fortunately in 19 late 80s, I was able to organize to buy the company in a leveraged buyout. Now, those of you in a business, business school know that leverage means you take a tremendous amount of debt, and those days at pretty very high interest rates. And for a number of years, we almost we thought we wouldn't make it, but we did. But then we made major changes to our offerings, to our manufacturing, to our, to our um, uh, network, but always maintained this question of treating people fairly. All of those, in the end of the day, made it possible for us to generate cash, to pay everybody off, and be strong. And I think all of those factors most probably contributed to this, what you mentioned by Worth magazine. And can I, I want to st- step in because mm-hmm. when, you know, I walked the floor with you and then was at a, um, a gala with you and you introduced me to a large chunk of the staff. One of the things, Tracy, that stood out for me was that as a corporation, how many people were actually there for more than 15 years? Wow. Most of them, and I was kidding around with one table because the, the shortest amount of time, I think it was 27 years at one table at Ethan Allen. That, that happened back in my grandfather's day, mm-hmm. right? That's not so common anymore now. And I think when it comes to Worth Magazine, and this is where Farouk, I think, is very humble in, the, in, in that sense, is that they feel as though it's not just a job there. When you talk with them, it's a home. Right? And, and people want to build their home. They want to make it stronger. They want to make it nicer. And I think that, as you know from the book, I, I, that comes from the top down. You see, also I would say that most people want to do a good job. Most people want to belong to something. Most people want to be part of an organization where they can contribute, where they're recognized, where they're treated fairly. Most people want that. When you give that opportunity to do that and then progress, they stay. We have very, very few people who leave us. Yes, I noticed. <laughs> I noticed that in, in, a, in a big way. And, and that gets me to something I, I, I want to ask. And I know, you know we have you know, not only honor students here, but also former honor staff 
that that have come back and for for this podcast and you, your donation to this university and specifically this program has made a big big difference. We get a lot of first generation college students here. I am actually a first generation uh, college student and. I've wanted to ask you this question, and I feel like this is the time. Tracy doesn't even know I'm going to ask this. Um, why? Why did you give to our program? Because I can tell you so many hundreds of reasons of how it made a difference. But I never asked you that, and I, I would love to, to hear your answer to that. Well, the reasons are that um, I, I, I felt that we could make a difference. And it was not being done because of the fact that somehow it will get, give us publicity. Because it was to do, do it in a manner that will recognize the work of the students. You see, I also, uh, when I came, as I said, and landed in Brooklyn, I had to work during the days. I had to go to school at night. And those days, fortunately, I could make enough money at making $2 or $3 (laughs) to be able to pay for my NYU fees, my apartment, my food, and even at a highly, highly, um, with a large loan, buy even a car. Today, it's not possible. It's crazy what's happened to the colleges and the universities. So the students that you have over here, most of them are students who are coming to work with, and most of them need some help. And so I, so I and my family, my wife also, we thought that here we could make a difference. And, and, we, and I, as you have rightly said, we're very proud of the fact that uh, we made this because when I look at the students over the last few years, and a number of them have also joined Ethan Allen. Yes. And in fact, I was just, uh, when I came in, I was talking to one of them who started as an intern in our video department and now is a manager for video. So we have a number of students who have come here because, you know, I've spent most of my life here in Danbury with this university. Even though I've been involved with other universities like uh, you mentioned, Georgetown and others, but this is home. Well, thank you, because you, you made a difference for, for a lot of us and given us an opportunity to take off. So, you know, and I wanted, I mean, you know this, but our listeners, a lot of our students who are undergrads, first, first generation college, are going full rides to graduate mm-hmm. school, to Harvard, to Columbia, to NYU, after they're here. And it's because of the generosity of you, but also what's one of the cool things about this program is so that the students can listen to, you can attain and get to the top. Mm-hmm. without having to push anybody down. Matter of fact, you can get to the top and bring a lot of people up with you. And to me, you're that model about how, as you're rising, you can bring a lot of people around you, even people you don't personally know yet, that you get to know up, up, on, up on top. And that, to me, is, is a sign of a true leader because a leader builds. A leader just doesn't destroy. It builds the capital, the human capital, all around them up. And, and I, I just wanted to say thank you, and I can't say that, that enough to you, because of where these students, some of them, Farouk, they'll tell me, they'll come here for a year and transfer, and most of them, 99%, stay, and then go on to grad school 
afterwards. And it's because of the resources we have here. As a state school, and you need to hear this, you know that state schools are being cut. But because of you, we're growing, right? Yeah, but let me tell you, Chris, that you know, this is a mutual benefit. And uh, we are very, very happy that we are able to, to, be make, a, to make some difference. And that um, and this is a very, for us, this is significant. Even the name of this house is important. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Absolutely. So I think that's a perfect segue. Um, let's hear from one of the students. Do you guys have some questions that you wanted to ask? Yeah. Anybody? Yeah, come on up. Don't be shy. It's okay. Hi. Hi there. <laughs> um, so and thanks for being the first one to. <laughs> Can you no, say your name and major? Um, hi, so my name is Baki Izat. Um, I'm a freshman. I'm currently undecided. Um, I just want to say thank you for coming here, taking your time to speak with us and um, educate us on what you're doing. Um, so my question is for us youngsters back here, what do you suggest um, the first stepping stones should be for us like to make a monumental impact on our communities or someday hopefully internationally what would you suggest we do i would say this that whatever you do do it with passion mm-hmm. because when i first came and my this job was uh, in fact i had no idea what to do because in kashmir i was mostly playing sports so i came to new york i saw an ad it said bookkeeper so i asked my class fellows what's a bookkeeper I'd never, they said, don't apply. <laughs> uh, so I had never seen a calculator in my life. So I did. It was near Canal Street. And, um, and fortunately, around lunchtime, so this man opened up these big books and a calculator by hand-operated machine, which I thought was a big computer. You know, I'd never seen it. Mm-hmm. He said, would you foot the book? I looked at him up because, you know, I didn't know what he was talking about, footing. And I said, what, what's it in English? He looked at me and said, where have you learned bookkeeping? And I said, England. (laughs) The only thing in England I had done was change a plane. (laughs) So anyway, I then, fortunately, I convinced him that I should get the job I did. Uh And I thought it was a pretty big job, learning that. So in other words, every job has to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And it was only after a year these people said to me, the only two small two, two partners, they printed envelopes. They said, you know, your school is near Wall Street, why don't you get a job on Wall Street? Mm-hmm. So I said, what would I do on Wall Street? They said, tell them you're a financial, you want a job as a financial analyst. I said, what does a financial analyst do? They said, you didn't know anything about bookkeeping, and you learned. And so uh, I went and I got a job on Bear Stearns, on the first building on Wall Street. In other words, you have to take a step at a time. You don't, can't say that all of a sudden are you going to be immediately get somewhere. Yes. Take a step at a time, do it with a lot of passion. I've always said that people say, I'm going to be very passionate when I get the job I want. Do it, the first job that you have, that is, and when you do that, you'll get the next job. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for your question. Um, so all along those lines, um, the compassion 
part of it. I mean, this is the Compassionate Achiever mm-hmm. podcast. <laughs> Do you think um, business in general is becoming more compassionate or less? Ooh. Well, you're generalizing, you know, obviously it's always difficult to generalize. True, true. Having said this, I think the pressures are such that if you were to use, if I had to sort of generalize it, I would say less compassionate because of the fact that, you know, globalization, commoditization have impacted everybody's life in terms of, uh, you know, look at this, our industry, 25 years back, 75% of the products were made in America. Today, 75% are made offshore. We have one of the few ones still making it here. It changes your perspectives of how, where you're going to. Uh, Commoditization, look at retail, for instance. Uh, It changed the perspective of small grocery stores when Walmart came in. Uh, hardware stores when Home Depot came in. It, thousands of them went out of business. Thousands of them. It was nothing to do with compassion. It was the fact the world had changed. So now, when we take a look at what's taking place with the internet, with all of those things, it is dislocating people. And so it, we are much more challenged today and of trying to understand how will we operate with compassion with these kind of changes. However, I think every business at a micro level can and has to have compassion because otherwise they will not have motivated people. It's a balancing act, not easy. Mm-hmm. All right, great, another question. Hello, and thank, thank you again so much for everything that you've given to us here. Not only do we have so many academic opportunities because of you, you've actually enabled us to create a home here very much like you have done at Ethan Allen. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Um, in this, this changing world with all of these crazy things going on right now, I've seen that you've had to deal with a tremendous amount of conflict. And my question is, how is it that you create, you cultivate a, an atmosphere of trust in these um, situations with conflict so that people can have conversations where they actually listen to each other and they take a very compassionate approach? You know, it's a very, very good ob- observation. And I'm just reminded when I was discussing this subject, I'm going back to the Kashmir study group. And after some involvement with the governments of both and the people, the, we were able to convince both the governments and the leaders of India and Pakistan for the first time in 50 years to allow some of the leaders, you might say, of the Kashmir region, Kashmir is divided between India and Pakistan, to meet in Nepal. And we, in fact, got, collaborated with uh, an, an Italian uh, think tank called Pugwash. So they were very much involved with this. And so about 50 of them, and then on top of it, some former military uh, political leaders and administrators of India and Pakistan were there too. So they were invited for the first time they came there. and. I was also invited, and there was no agenda, because nobody could agree to an agenda. Nobody could even agree to who's going to chair the meeting, because there were such differences among these 50 people. But I realized that possibly they might ask me. I had a gut feeling. So I asked one of our members of our study group, in fact, he recently passed away, and 
uh, next month is having his um, having a memorial service at Columbia University. He was the chairman at Columbia University of the the political science department. Remember the Kashmir study? I asked him. I said, "These people are meeting for the first time, and if for some reason I'm asked to moderate them, what do you what advice would you give?" So Ainsley thought about it. Very wise person. He said. If I were you, I would tell them that first thing you should consider is that everybody at this table should be considered as equal, even though outside the world they're not. Second, ask them to speak from the bottom of their hearts, of their stomachs. And third, they should do their best to empathize with the point of view of others. So I kept those in mind, and it just so happened that when we went there, in this one room, they were all there, and a silence. Then finally, somebody said to me, please, you moderate this meeting. So I said these three things, plus I added two more. I said, in addition to the fact that uh, uh, these, these three elements, you also, I believe that we should have everybody speak for three minutes or so and go round the table as many times. Because I have found in many of these meetings a few people love to talk and others who may have something to say are hesitant to talk in everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's a corporate or politics. And the last one I said was, to add it was, please don't interrupt while somebody's speaking because they love to interrupt. So there was silence. One politician said, you know, it takes me 10 minutes to warm up. <laughs> what are you saying, three minutes? I said, I understand. It's only three minutes, and I'll be watching it. I said, if you don't agree, I will not moderate it. My conditions are these. So they thought about it. They said, OK. So we went around three or four times of these principles of treating people with equality at the table, working very hard to understand the point of view of others, because we don't try to really understand why even crazy people do what they do. They, they have a point of view. We think they're crazy, but everyone has a point of view. So, and then if you treat them and then make them go around, it's an amazing thing happened that after three years of discussion, we, they agreed to a sensible way out. Thank you very much. All right, thanks. Yeah, thank you for your question. And, uh, and then we go back to the business part of it. You actually were working towards a solution, not just talking and keep going around and around and ruminating on, on well, the And there's been things. studies on that that it's called creating a negative space where everyone feels comfortable that they can talk, right? And that is up to the person who's leading it to create that atmosphere of trust that you can speak as Farouk said, from the bottom of your stomach, right? From, from your gut and your heart. And that, that negative space, that creation of negative space, it's called, that comes up with new ideas, innovative ideas, ideas that people were afraid to, to say. You see, um, I'll also say this, that even at Ethan Allen, all these years, every time we have a meeting, I make it a point, if there are five people, 10 people, even sometimes 20, I ask everybody to give their point of view, everybody. And you know, it's an interesting thing that once you create that as part of your culture, people speak up. If not, the people who may have be reporting to somebody else who's there, they'll defer to them. 
I also, as policy, ask the person at the so-called lowest level to speak first. Because somebody at a higher up speaks. Let's assume somebody who's a president speaks. Who else is going to speak? <laughs> that's right. In have a different Against point of view. them or whatever. Right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. That. Um, any other questions? Do you have another one? Yes. Sure, come on up. Good evening. Um, my name is Shirley Seguenza, and I am also a freshman. Currently, I am a biology major. And first off, I would also like to thank you for coming here, Dr. Kothori. Um, this is a very special event for all of us. So my question to you is that before, you have mentioned that businesses are not leaning towards compassion. And although this is true, are you still hopeful that not only businesses, but the world will be able to bounce back towards compassion before some ca- catastrophic event occurs? Well, that's a you know, very important issue that you're talking about. And uh, look, we are right now living in such a uh, crisis, and um, we are living in a state whereby um, we have such major conflicts going on. Uh, whether it's the Korean, the North Korean conflict, whether we are looking at the conflict in uh, the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, even in Ukraine. All of these are major, major conflicts and I think requires a tremendous amount of wisdom to maneuver. And unfortunately today, we are in a dangerous situation that there is a situation where the leadership and uh, not only here, but in many other countries, has become extremely short-sighted. The other thing that I think that there is not much of a, much, much, much thought given to, consequences of our own actions. I was in Washington, actually, a couple of days back, discussing in a meeting, and part of a meeting, we were discussing these very important issues that you talked about. And I was reminded, and I mentioned, that I was involved with Georgetown University at that time. I'm still in, but we at the Foreign School, School of Foreign Service. A committee was established which was looking at the subject of unintended consequences of actions of others. What could happen if Russia did something, or Indonesia did something, or Argentina? I thought about it and I suggested, why don't we study the unintended consequences of our own actions? <laughs> right. We always say what somebody else is going to do. Everybody, you know, these are all diplomats and military generals and they stopped. Had a discussion, they agreed, they said, yep, we didn't think of it. We always say what somebody else is going to do. What about us? So anyway, a committee was formed and we discussed many issues and we came with the, this was before the, the invasion of Iraq, the second invasion of Iraq. So we came with the conclusion that we should study the impact and implications if the United States invaded a Muslim country. And we spent discussions on this, and the, res- and the conclusions were after the study, unfortunately the study came about the same time when the, when the invasion started, that it would be a disaster. The unintended consequences could be refugees, destabilization, Unintended consequences could be that the Middle East was created in an artificial manner by, at that time, the colonial powers. We're forgetting that if we created instability, all of that could break up, and it did. So, 
Today, I think our leaders have to think about the unintended consequences of our actions and also to think about the fact that some of these problems didn't take place in the last five, five years or four years or ten years. Some of these go back to 50, 100, 200 years for the people who are involved with these problems. So there's a tremendous need for leaders to understand the unintended consequences of actions at all levels. As a human being, as individuals, we, we are in small way confronted with that. If we did something like this, what would happen? But nations have to consider that, and they're not. And at one, the United Nations was set up for that kind of a situation, but unfortunately, they're not spending the time on discussing the unintended consequences. So your question is very relevant, but unfortunately, at this stage, there is more danger that something uh, you know, bad could happen because people are not thinking of their own actions. They're always thinking of what somebody else is going to do. So can I just piggyback off of that question? Um, that, and, and I, I kind of want to get this you know, clearly stated from you, that is compassion a key to success in terms of overcoming problems? And if so, why? And if not, why? You see, compassion is something that one can describe in many ways. Uh, compassion is not just the fact that you're going to take care of somebody, you like somebody. Compassion is understanding also the other person's point of view. That's what I said. That's the most important one. You've got to understand why they do what they do. Now, you may not agree with it. Compassion does not mean that you're going to agree with anything. But compassion also understands why this, pers this, this person in North Korea is doing what he's doing. Could be crazy, but there's a reason for it. Why do the folks in Iraq, why does Saddam Hussein do what he did? Or others. So compassion means understanding the point of view and does not mean just you're just kind. When you understand the other points of view, then you can make a rational decision of what's the best way of handling it. All right. Thank you. Mm. Um, and I think you pretty much just answered this, and I was going to ask this as our last question, unless anybody else has something. Oh, do you have another one? Great. Uh, perfect. two of them. All right, two great. Yeah, good, good. Come this on up. Perfect. And as they're coming up, uh, coming up, I, I, you know, and I know, Tracy, I, well, I want you to still ask that question. That's a key <laughs> question that we ask, ask every guest, is that, you know, Farouk, when people think of business, people think of international politics, compassion, you know, and I define compassion as this understanding and then the commitment to act, that it has no place in, in business. It has no place in international politics. And I, I, I disagree. Like you, I, I believe it has to be and has to play a role. And I even asked the former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, when I had a, a lunch with him. And I said, you know, does compassion play any role in making compassion, uh, counter, uh, counterintelligence agents successful or not? And he said, similar to you, that the best agents, the best counterintelligence agents were the most compassionate because they had to cultivate resources. It's not the ones that take out their weapons and fire, it's the ones who could see the whole perspective as you were talking about right. and move forward in a constructive manner where nothing gets destroyed but you still get the information that you need. And, and I think you know, having you and being one of the top 50 CEOs in the country espouse the concept of compassion. I, I think just hearing that makes a difference, I think, and can make a difference for many people in the business world because they think they have to be selflessly ruthless 
And I, and I think, you know, just walking with you, I wish everyone could walk with you once to the floor, just to get a sense of how backward that selfish, ruthless thinking is. Yeah, well, you see, I mean, there are questions here, but recently I was asked a few months back to be the keynote speaker at the, the chief communications officers of the largest American companies. I know how they selected me, but they asked me, so they wanted me to give a speech. I said, I don't like speeches. Why doesn't somebody talk, ask me questions like we are doing? You might have heard that, I do not know. It was a chief communications. And you know, these are folks who are really helping make, uh, help shape the debate. These were chief communications officers of companies like AT&T and Walmart and all of that. And, and this is what we talked about, because I want to make sure that compassion is good for you, but it's got to be done in a manner that long term, if you don't take care of others, you're going to be left out. Yeah, please. Hello, Dr. Kathwari. Thank you very much for coming They're today. all calling me doctor. You know that? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah. And thank you, everyone else, for being here as well. Yeah. I greatly appreciate it and taking a lot away from this. Um, and so my question is relevant to, to peace, actually, and specifically referring to negative and positive peace, negative being the cessation of war or issue and positive being the construction. And so going off of your last question, um, and this question is both for Dr. Kathwari and Dr. Cook, uh, where does the reconstruction begin in the search for positive peace on the individual level? There is a very common, uh, there, there is a present mindset that many in our generation do not have a voice in what we, in our, what we can do. What is our role? Where can we invest our passions compassionately and through our leadership? Well, you know, it's a very, very good question and an important one. I think that uh, compassion, we have to, to project compassion as being good for us, good for our businesses, good for our growth, because if we say that, you know, yep, you, compassion is something as a, something on the side, you got to do it because it's a good thing to do, but it's not really going to help you. So it's a question of how we shape the debate. We've got to say that compassion means you're treating people fairly. Treating people fairly does not mean necessarily giving things away. People who deal with us at Ethan Allen, they know that if they're not, I tell them that we're going to have great partners, but if you mess up, we're no longer going to be a partner. You might lose it. You've got to get that message across. So people have to be given that, that we believe in fairness, but it's a, it's a two-way street. And that message, I think, has to get across in our leaderships, in our communications. And, but unfortunately, as we hear that, you know, there's a lot of that is lost in, in, this, uh, in, the, in, in the clutter of all kinds of silly stuff that is being discussed. But I think what you are doing, um, Chris, and, uh, and these discussions, I think people need it. I'm sure that you know, one of the things I see at Ethan Allen is people, we had 550 people last week. And people, and they were crying and, la and laughing and being, because they were treated with dignity. Treating people with dignity is one of the most important things that we have to do. It doesn't matter who it is, what color they are, what religion they are, you do that, you're gonna make great friends. Yeah, and, that, and just off of that, right, that's the model of action. Compassion is about action and taking action. So what you say doesn't matter as much as what you actually do, right? And so when you're helping another, 
uh, and you're helping a colleague. And I've seen you tutor uh, students and many of you, you know, tutoring each other, giving back and forth. That builds up trust. And when you can form that trust, that creates a group. And when that group comes together, you amplify your voice. And anytime uh, a group of citizens amplifies their voice, people tend to listen. And it starts, though, as Farouk said, on that individual le level, by what you actually do, right? Because, you know, my, you guys know I have three, three little boys. I can say and tell them to do something, but that doesn't matter if I actually don't do it, right? But you guys, as colleagues, students to students, you build each other up or you tear each other down. And we, we have a saying, right? And, and in our program, there's two types of type A students, right? What, what are they? Sharks and dolphins. And what do sharks do? Sharks take one another down. And what do dolphins do? Right. And so we try to populate the program, right? The Kathwari Honors Program. Now you understand why I'm going for the dolphins, right? He's, he's the model, right? It's about building that community where everyone's building each other up. And when you do that, you amplify your voice. And guess what happened, right? We went from a program of 60 students at a 3.2 to a program, the Kathwari Honors Program, to over 360 students at a 3.7. And that's because you all help each other build, oh, right? Thank you, appreciate that. Okay, we'll take maybe one more question. Yeah, no, there are three of them. They can just ask the questions. Okay, perfect. No, they, you're okay with time? Oh, no, I'm okay, of okay. course. Perfect. Wow. We'll take them all. Wow, thank you. You're yeah, supposed to be in you. Shanghai, so. I know. No, no. <laughs> this, I, have, I, have, I have the time. It's all good. right, yeah. perfect. Thank you. Good Go afternoon. Ahead. My name is Hao Nguyen. I'm a freshman year at the university, and I'm a double major in mathematics and chemistry. And I would also like to thank you for being here and your contribution to your program. I spend most of my time here than I do at home, so that is really grateful. Good. And I would like to ask, like, have you ever experienced any time where you feel like your contribution and your effort did not really make a good, like a good contribution to your people around you? And if so, how do you like manage to overcome that and continue to be compassionate? Yeah, it's a, again an important issue. I, I, you know, I don't pay too much attention to that. It's also like saying that, do you ever feel being discriminated? Never. It's somebody else's problem. <laughs> you always have to think. I never, I've been around, I never thought, if it was, maybe they were thinking something, not me. So I think that you have to keep on doing the right thing and not worry about the fact that something is not going to work. Because, you know, it's part of life, something's not going to work. But that is, does not derailate. So have you ever concerned that there's maybe something going wrong and that there's certainly a way that you could do to make it right and you may be neglecting that by being just looking at your positive thing but neglecting your negative thing going on? Uh, negative in what way, I'm sorry? I suppose like something bad is going on around you and may, you may not be able to acknowledge it. Oh, well, you see, uh, acknowledging is one thing. I mean, you cannot... You, you, if, say, say, if say somebody is doing something wrong, you have to understand it. Now, if somebody is doing very wrong, then you've got to take action. If somebody is saying something that is really not, by, the, by your action, it is only going to hurt you and not make a difference, then you disregard it. All right. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you.
Hi again. Hi. So uh, my name is Baki again. So my question is, I've been to Saudi Arabia and you know Pakistan as well, and there's me being me, like you see who, how I am. Um, I've encountered some negativity, and I'm sure in your years of experience, you have too. Um, I just want to know how you come back from that and how you can lift yourself up in times like this where people look, may look at you and automatically judge based on your appearance or um, your background and what you've been through. So how, how, can you, how do you face that negativity? Because nowadays, if someone says something to me personally, there is no response, <laughs> there are no words. Um, so no, how I, I, I understand. You say you're wearing a hijab, <laughs> and not easy. And you, because you could have people, what you have to do is this: you have to disregard it. It's their problem, not yours. You mm -hmm. really have to say to your mind: if somebody is looking at you differently, even making a remark, you have to. You have, you're not listening. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody harming you, then of course it's a different issue. But most of the time, if you are reacting to somebody's hate. You're hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. Disregard it. Let it is their problem. Look at them, smile, and move on. That's what I would do. Thank you. All right. Hello again. Hi um, there. I'm still Rachel. Um, <laughs> my, my question was uh, one of the most important parts of compassion I'm seeing is listening to other people and putting yourself in a place where you can understand their perspective. And I imagine that with all this conflict, there are a lot of things that bring up a lot of really intense emotions that are very difficult to deal with. How do you put those aside and get yourself into the best mental space to be receptive to other people's perspectives? You see, it's a good question when even, for instance, I was, you talked about CNBC, it just so happened that Jim Cramer, it, I was on his show the day this, uh, the first ban, uh, or travel ban was implemented. So I just have, I was talking to him on business, but he said, I've never talked to anybody about business. How do you react to this? Being somebody like me who has come from Kashmir and, uh, and being a Muslim, I said, you know, my perspective is that taking any action against innocent people is wrong. I believe that you have to give people an opportunity. See, this country uh, is based on providing opportunity, and we cannot treat everybody with suspicion and unfairly. And because that will be, in my view, tremendously negative for the America. We have to make sure that we don't treat everybody with suspicion. And the problem is that there are some people who may do bad things. But when you start treating everybody with suspicion, then look, at it. it's happened to the Italians. There was the mafia and all Italians were considered that. It happened to the Irish. Nothing new. So you have to stay away from the fact of generalizing, and you have to really, you know, as I said earlier too, you have to uh, look up, you have to say that you will talk positively. I talked positively. He asked me, actually, President Trump were to call you, what would you advise him? And what do you think of his policies? Now, it's on national television. I said, first of all, there are certain things I agree with President Trump. Because you always should first, even if you're going to disagree with somebody, talk positively first. 
I said, I agree the fact the country needs change. I said, we at Ethan Allen would not be around for 85 years earlier this year if we had not reinvented. So the ideas of reinvention is important, but it's got to be done sensibly. So now you start de de defining the discussion. So you cannot completely disagree with anything, everything. If you do that, then you, you're not going to be listened to. So similarly, I mean, this is an important issue. I agree that our the political structure in Washington is not good. Change needs to be made. But the question is how? It's got to be done sensibly. You cannot completely disagree even with a person you may think you want to disagree with everything. That's not right. Thank you so much for your insight. All right. Hello again. I'm Shirley. Uh, I, my second question to you is, as an individual who came to the U.S. at the age of 20, are there any stories that you would like to share with first-generation students who are not only struggling to rewrite their own history, but that of their communities as well? Yes, well, that's what, I've, that's what we have been discussing, that, uh, you know, I came with, I had studied literature and political science because I've always wanted to only play sports. So those were the subjects, while everybody else was serious, was going to medicine or engineering. Those are the things you're supposed to do. I said, no, nope. I didn't tell my family, I did it on my own. And so, you know, you have to, when I came, the good thing about my, my coming at the age I did, I didn't come from a big city, I came from the mountains. So I had no preconceptions of America which is good. The only thing of conceptions I had was some Hollywood movies and some cowboy movies. I thought we'd see cowboys in New York, and they weren't. <laughs> I'd never seen a subway. So, but I think that uh, you have to uh, really not get caught in these perceptions. You've got to say to yourself, I am no different than anybody else. I said that, and I learned that in the subway system. When I went to the subway the next day, after coming, when I had no idea of America, I looked around and I thought I'm going to see in America Hollywood, glamour. These were folks in the subway holding them by the strap. I said, it's okay, I'm no different. Then that's an important thing that we have to do, that we are no, neither superior or inferior, we're like everybody else. And that means you're going to treat everybody with compassion and dignity, everybody. And even those folks, if they have issues, it's their problem, not yours. I've always felt that way. That's why I don't think I've ever been discriminated against anywhere, because I never saw it. That's what I think we have to do. Thank you. Okay. Great questions, you guys. Thank you so much. And I know that we have you know, really kept you here, and as well as the audience. So we're going to go um, with one last question. Chris. Chris loves this question. I'm not sure why I ask it. You should, you should just ask it. But anyway, we ask all of our guests this. Um, do you look at compassion as a value, a virtue, or a verb, and why? It's complicated. It is yes, complicated. It is. What, it's also what, complex. What, what do you mean? Uh, I'll let you explain so, this. You explain. This is okay. Okay. So basically, do you see the the way you define compassion as a virtue, a value, or a verb, something that you know you're born with, or something that you can learn, or is it an action, or is it all of them? You don't have to choose one or the other. You can you can say it's all, but it's the key, I guess, is in explaining why. Because 
when you explain why you feel that way, it helps others see your perspective on how compassion is. I, I would define compassion. When you treat people with dignity, you feel dignified yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's treating them. It's it's so basically it's a verb, right? Getting out there, treating people. I with, was not good at English, so I don't know <laughs> yeah, what terminology no, to use. Yeah, well, the word treating, right? The word treating that means you're doing something to dignify someone else, to show respect, right, to someone else. Even and I think your answer that you gave to a couple of questions that. Even when you disagree, there's always some vein of commonality, right? That there is a, something you believe and share with somebody, even maybe on an issue you vehemently disagree with, but you start on this bridge, right? And I love that idea because that's an action that you have to take in order to make a difference, right? It, it is. You really have to work as hard as you can to understand the other person's point of view. Okay, we take a look at the demographics that's taking place in this country. Now I have, we have 2,000 people working for us at Ethan Allen in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Uh, they, I go there and they treat me as one of them. Think of this. They treat me one of them because I have over the years treated them, not seen them any differently. But if you perhaps, you would have thought that they would look upon me and say that, you know, this person is not born here. He's even a name like Farouk. What does that all mean? No. When you start treating people with dignity, over the years, they start looking at you differently. And, and then you also understand, look, if they, for instance, they have different points of view and they're concerned of losing their jobs to immigrants, of changing the dem- demographics, there are people who are concerned. And you've got to understand their concern. You know, in their, from their point of view, they're right. Okay. So now you go, from their point of view, they're right. So you've got to work and understand that everybody, even those folks who hate, have, have these elements of hate, you've got to understand why do they do it. Now, you may not agree with it, but understanding that is important. And you talk of compassion, even those folks you've got to treat with compassion. Thank you, Farooq. Oh, thank you again. Farooq Kathwari, Chairman, President, and CEO of Ethan Allen. Thank you for being here. And yes, thank you thank for you. listening. Thank you. Yes. And to our audience. Yes, our, our audience. First live Thanks, audience. Guys. Absolutely. You can uh, be sure and find us um, on any of your favorite podcast channels at WCSU Media. Hope to uh, have you tune in. And we're going to have. Uh, Go ahead. I was thinking we need some feedback too, right? We, we wanna... would love feedback. So on Twitter, we're on, yes. on Twitter. At Comp Achiever Podcast. And um, you can also find us, you can email us or whatever at the compassionateachiever.com. No, it's not yeah. the compassionate. No, it's compassionate. It's just compassionateachiever.com. So check us out there. But thank you all for being here. And most of all, thank you, Farouk. Thank and you very much. And we hope our listeners that you've listened today to another, you know, one of our amazing guests. And to me, this was really a personal um, experience and I, I can't say thank you enough again for everything that you do for so many students here in your own neighborhood and neck of the woods and, and what you have done and the tools that you've shared with all of us and those tools I hope to our listeners too that you can unleash the compassionate achiever within you so that you can unlock success. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.